I do want to say at the beginning that the line between Adam in the New Testament and Adam in systematic theology is going to be a rather fine line here. Um, and and uh, what, I, what I'm trying to do, and it is inadequate, and I recognize that. I can tell you ways it's inadequate. But what I'm trying to do is integrate key teachings that we're going to find in sustained texts with some biblical and systematic theological concerns that arise from them. So I'm not going to be proof texting every text that can be proof texted. I'm going to use a similar method here where I'm going to try to mine now this one, this text, and look in a sustained way at it because it lends itself to the um, most basic way that the Apostle Paul expresses the origin and character of sin that is imputed to Adam's posterity, those who descend from him by ordinary generation. And I recognize uh, that I'm not giving you a full-orbed systematic theological presentation. It just I can't do it <laughs> adequately and it would take too long, so I'm going to look at this text. Now, the second thing I want you to note is um, I, I've had to compress some of the exegetical material in this lecture because after I walk through the Romans 5 material, I'm going to interact um, with a few of the core features of a contemporary denial of the historical Adam found in a recent book published by Peter Enns entitled The Evolution of Adam, what the Bible does and doesn't teach about human origins. So, I'm not going to be able to spend as much time on this text as I did in the last session. So I'm but I'm still going to try to hit its main features and probe its basic structures as context for interacting with the insights of Dr. Ent. So with that um, in view here, um, I will read this text in a moment. Um, But let me begin in a manner analogous to the way I began in the first lecture by giving you just a quick overview of what Reformed theology in its classical expressions teaches about Adam's sin. Adam's sin has a basic twofold profile, a twofold reality to it. And this sin in its twofold significance implicates not only himself, but all humanity that descends from him by ordinary generation. The Westminster Shorter Catechism 16 puts the federal representative headship of Adam in this way. All mankind descending from him by ordinary generation sinned in him and fell with him in his first transgression. That's the fact of Adam's federal headship, implicating all human beings who descend by ordinary generation. And that sin of Adam ushers himself and his posterity into the estate of sin and misery. And Westminster Shorter Catechism 18 says that the sinfulness of that estate consists of this. In the guilt of Adam's first sin, the want of original righteousness 
and the corruption of his whole nature, which is commonly called original sin, together with all actual transgressions which proceed from it. Now, central to Paul's understanding of sin is that sin is an enslaving power, a regimen that rules over all who are under its sway. Jew and Gentile alike are all under sin, slaves to sin, dead in sin, and do not have the power to extricate themselves from that sin as dominion, as corrupting and pervasive within. That is what the Shorter Catechism speaks of as original sin, the corruption of the whole nature. That aspect of sin, sin is enslaving power, sin is a corrupting and corrosive influence we will not look at. Instead, I want us to focus on the guilt of Adam's first sin, the want of original righteousness. I want to focus instead on the forensic dimension of sin. Sin is both something that incurs guilt before God. And something that brings about an enslaving power over those who are in its grip. And Romans 5, 12 through 19 is a key text that outlines the forensic aspect of sin. Sin as trespass. Sin as guilt. Sin as condemnation. And roots that problem of what the standards call the guilt of Adam's first sin and the want of original righteousness roots that in the historical primal trespass of Adam, the first created man. The text in context reads as follows. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. <clears throat> Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for as many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. 
Now, there is so much that could be said about the structuring of Romans 5, 12 through 19. And there are implications and features of the text that are very worthy of our detailed consideration. But what I want to do is turn up some of the basic connections and the antithetical parallels that once again appear with regard to the work of the first Adam and the work of the second. And the difference in our focus here in Romans 5 is very basic, very different focus from 1 Corinthians 15. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul contemplates Adam as unfallen and created to Christ as resurrected and glorified. Romans 5 contemplates Adam as fallen. Adam as post-fall Adam and not pre-fall Adam. In the Apostle Paul's theology and more broadly in the theology of Scripture, there is a basic and non-negotiable distinction that is affirmed. That there is a transition from benevolence to wrath, from innocency to sin and misery in covenant history. There is a decisive movement from a paradise realm of righteousness and holiness to a land that is cursed with thorn and thistle on account of Adam's sin. And Romans 5 now gives us the same broad perspective that we had in 1 Corinthians 15 moved in just a bit. Now looking at Adam, not in terms of the integrity of his pre-fall creation, but the sin and trespass and disobedience of the first man. Now, here's what I want you to focus on first as we look at this text. First, notice this, that the sin, trespass and disobedience of Adam, sin, trespass and disobedience are inseparably correlated with one another in this text. And they provide the context in terms of which we understand both his condemnation and our condemnation in him. To take them in order first, note this, that the sin of Adam, Romans 5.12, is most foundationally to be viewed as trespass of the divine will. That's clear that the sin of Adam in verse 12 is viewed as trespass. Look at 5.15. The free gift in Christ is not like the trespass in Adam. 5.17, by one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Sin, verse 12, is clarified as trespass in 5.15a and 5.17a. Sin is certainly a relational concept, but it is a relational concept in view of a creator-creature relationship. Sin at its core, most basically considered, is a violation of God's righteous will. 
a violation of God's revealed moral law that creatures are to love the Lord their God with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Psalm 51.4 Against you, Lord, and only you have I sinned. Not dismissing the horizontal concerns that sin raises, nor the egregious horizontal expressions of sin. Sin, first and foremost, is a trespass of divine will. And it's this that gives sin its sinister, God-denying character. So first and foremost, sin is a stepping over the bounds, a transgressing or trespassing of God's revelation. As such, sin as trespass leads to condemnation. Look in 5.18. One trespass led to condemnation. Trespass leads to condemnation. It is at this point that we recognize that the transgression or the trespass of the divine will renders Adam and all men comprehended in him, represented by him, judicially liable to condemnation. This brings into view a forensic context, a context in which the Lord is represented as a righteous judge. And Adam is represented as a rebel who has transgressed the boundaries of the lawgiver and is declared guilty. Sin that leads to condemnation has as its context the righteousness and holiness of God the Lord as judge. So that in addition to the idea that Eden was like a temple, Eden was, as it were, the court of the Lord. And God, upon the condition of Adam's disobedience, judged that trespass with a verdict of condemnation. Of course, more can be said about what God does in Genesis 3, but no less ought to be said. That trespass as sin is worthy of judgment and reaps the consequence of condemnation for all men. Sin is not only vertically oriented against God, but it meets with his divine disapproval and displeasure in the form of condemnation. Another way Paul puts this in 516, the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. Judgment follows trespass and brings condemnation. The connection here is made explicit. Sin seals condemnation before a just and holy God as a violation of his holy will, a trespassing of his moral law. Third, and speaking more globally, Paul broadens his focus in 19 and summarizes the problem as disobedience. By the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners. It is by the disobedience of the one created image-bearing man, what 1545 and 47 
referred to as the first Adam, the first man. It is by his disobedience that instead of gaining eschatological life for himself and his posterity, he brought eschatological condemnation and sin. Sin is introduced as the guilt of all and the condemnation is the condemnation of all as it is tethered to the representative disobedience of Adam as a federal head. And tomorrow afternoon, you're going to hear a wonderful defense of the logic of this construction. I'm just telling you that it is. You'll hear tomorrow much more about the what and how of this. But put in summary fashion, if you deny this, you have denied the core of Paul's theology of sin. And it's this, the sin of Adam, understood as trespass and disobedience, elicits condemnation and consists in death for all Adam's posterity. First Adam and then those who are in him. You know, as a, as a, as a brief aside this is the most basic historical explanation for sin in Paul's theology. You cannot get behind the historical Adam to find the introduction of sin into the human race. It is the primary plight that redemption addresses. And in Paul's thought, I'll come back to this, but listen. In Paul's thought, the plight is found in the personal representative disobedience of Adam that results in condemnation and judgment. So, annexed here to um, Paul's theology of Adam is now sin, death, and condemnation. Now, in antithetical contrast to sin as trespass and disobedience, eliciting condemnation and death, notice that Paul presents the righteousness of Christ understood climactically as one act of obedience. I think it's ultimately the climactic obedience of the cross that's in view, but I won't have time to argue that. That that climactic act of obedience elicits justification in life. First, notice this. Sin stands in direct contrast, pardon me, trespass stands in direct contrast to righteousness in 518. They are antithetically related to one another. Look at this. Then as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all man, men, so one man's act of righteousness leads to justification in life. For all men. I'll swing back around and qualify the all. It's qualified in 517. All who receive the free gift of righteousness. But the point here is this. That the work of Christ as a second Adam is described in direct contrast to sin as trespass using the language of righteousness. If trespass is overstepping the boundaries of God's revealed will. Righteousness is conforming to that revealed will. Put in the context of 518. 
Sin as trespass is overstepping the boundaries of God's revealed will. Righteousness is a conforming to them. And if you'd allow me to qualify this in light of Philippians 2.8, it is an obedience unto death that's going to come into view. An obedience unto death. But this not only places Christ's one act of righteousness over against Adam's sin as trespass, but it means this, that the one act of righteousness is designed to deal specifically with the one trespass of Adam. The one man's trespass that leads to condemnation is met by one man's act of righteousness. That leads to justification. And therefore, secondly, just as sin stands in contrast to righteousness, so also condemnation stands in contrast to justification. If the trespass involves a violation of the divine will and righteousness involves a conformity to the divine will, then the trespass invokes condemnation. And the one act of righteousness invokes justification, which is what? Well, just as condemnation is forensic and declarative and involves the imputing of guilt to a posterity, likewise justification. It is forensic and declarative and involves the reckoning of the righteousness of the one to the many. If I could put it this way, the horizon that informs justification is the problem produced by condemnation. Jew-Gentile relations, Galatians 2, might be an implication of justification. But the essential historical reality to which justification answers is the condemnation That arises from the first transgression, the trespass of Adam. And the mechanism that accounts for the reckoning of Adam's trespass as the basis for our condemnation is what theologians call imputation. The term is not present in Romans 5. The concept is inescapable. Adam's sin is the sin of all. Adam's death is the death of all. Adam's condemnation is the condemnation of all. And the ground for that condemnation is the disobedience of Adam. And the ground for justification, verse 19, is the obedience of Christ. Notice Paul. As through the disobedience of the one, the many were constituted sinners. So also... Through the obedience of the one shall the many be justified or be counted righteous. Point to notice here is that Paul now construes the verdicts of condemnation and justification on the basis of disobedience and obedience, respectively. Condemnation is rooted in or grounded in the disobedience of Adam and justification is grounded in or rooted in the obedience of Christ. And this means that Paul's concern here regarding Christ's 
act of righteousness and his obedience is to supply the ground of justification. Now, the question that arises, and I will have to be even more uh, brief here, is how is this justification that is grounded in Christ's obedience received, according to Paul? How is what is effected in the once for all act of righteousness, the obedience unto death of Christ? How is that once for all obedience something that comes to benefit a sinner in justification? Well, put basically, this justification in Christ is received by faith as a free gift. As a free gift. Texts that make this clear are abundant. Romans 5.17 Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. It is here in Romans 5.17 that Paul speaks of justification as a gift. A gift of righteousness. And the gift of righteousness in 5.17 has Christ's one act of righteousness, 18, and Christ's obedience, verse 19, at its center. The righteousness in view can be none other than the righteousness of Christ. There is no other righteousness in view. And the gift character of the righteousness reminds us that it comes from without. It comes from another. The gift of righteousness received accents the fact that you receive justification freely by faith as a gift. It is gifted righteousness to be received by faith. Not only Do we know this from the gift language that Paul used? But in Paul's theology especially, and more broadly, receiving and believing are used synonymously. In 1 Corinthians 15, 1-2, Paul can say about the gospel, both that it is something received, verse 1, and which a person believes, or perhaps believes in vain, verse 2. But receiving the gospel is tantamount to believing the gospel. Receiving and believing are coordinate. To receive implies to believe and to believe implies receiving. In the gospel of John, receiving Jesus is tantamount to believing him. And those who do not receive him do not believe. John 1.12 and John 3.11. Paul puts this notion beyond doubt in Romans 3, 24 through 25, that believers are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Whatever else we say about this text in relation to Romans 5, 17, 
the gift character of justification is through faith. Made explicit in 325, it is received as the free gift of faith in 517. The correlation of gift and faith in this text gets at the heart of the gospel in its forensic aspect. Those who are united to Christ by faith receive a gift of righteousness that is Christ's own. Therefore, those who receive the gift of righteousness are those who believe in Jesus Christ. And that which is received by faith is Christ's own righteousness. Now, here's a point that we need to recognize. When we view Romans 5 in a even terse investigation, a short and brief investigation like this, the key that stands out are the concrete federal representative works of either Adam or Christ. In 1 Corinthians 15, remember, I said that Adam as a person stands out with just as much realism as Christ. Adam created Christ raised. Likewise, in Romans 5, Adam stands out with the same degree of representative realism as Jesus Christ. In Adam, by his trespass, comes condemnation, comes death to all men. The wages of sin is death in Adam and to his posterity. Now, One way to summarize this to just show you one brief bridge to what we looked at in 1 Corinthians 15 is Paul's aphoristic way of putting this. You want an aphoristic summary of Romans 5, 12 through 19 in Paul. You can find it in 1 Corinthians 15, 22. For as in Adam... All die. So also in Christ shall all be made alive. Do you hear the representative and realistic way that both figures are placed? Adam is the source of death just as Christ is the source of life. And as a very brief aside, the all who will be made alive are all who fall asleep in Christ. The all who are made alive are those who belong to Christ and have fallen asleep in Christ. Verse 20 and verse 23. In other words, qualifying the all who will be made alive are those who have fallen asleep in Christ and those who belong to Christ. Namely, as Romans 5.17 says, those who have received The free gift of righteousness in him. If the indispensable context for our understanding of the historical Adam, the indispensable context, rather, for the historical character of Christ's resurrection is the historical Adam. So likewise, our understanding of the gospel of grace, what is accomplished by Christ and imputed to his people depends upon the context 
that is in place in Adam's original sin. Now, as brief as that is, you get a sense of this, of the baseline continuity that exists between Paul's presentation in 1 Corinthians 15 on the one hand and Romans chapter 5 on the other. And we can talk more about Romans 5. There are features that otherwise I'd like to talk about that I didn't. But with that, with that basic caveat in place, I want to talk to you about a contemporary challenge that will, I think, surprise you with regard to its degree of challenging of Paul's most basic theological perspective. It might strike you as surprising to note that certain biblical scholars who understand themselves and style themselves to be evangelical actually deny up front that the Apostle Paul is correct in teaching what we have considered in 1 Corinthians 15 and Romans 5 regarding Adam as the first created man, his eschatological goal, his personal sin, his historical fall, and the imputation of sin and death and condemnation to all he represents. Such scholars claim that Paul was wrong to affirm that Adam was the first created human being from whom all others derive and that by his disobedience, sin and death entered the world. Let me give you an example of this. Peter ends in a recent volume entitled The Evolution of Adam. What the Bible does and doesn't say about human origins offers some hermeneutical reflections that will startle the casual reader. Regarding the Apostle Paul's understanding of Adam in Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15, he says, quote, At the outset, we should admit that Adam is a vital theological and historical, italicized, historical figure for Paul. Without question, Adam plays a significant theological role for Paul. But Adam's theological significance cannot be distanced from Paul's assumption that Adam was the first man created by God. Adam's theological importance does not exist for Paul, independent of Adam's historical position as the first man from whom the human race descended and from whom all inherited sin and death. It is Adam as the first man that makes him such a vital theological significance. Page 120. He understands that, right? He says yes. He would listen, in other words, to our exposition from 1 Corinthians 15 and Romans 5 and say yes. That is vital for Paul. The historical and the theological mutually contextualize one another and are inseparably integrated with one another for Paul. But getting to the core of his argument ends, says this. He says, the scientific evidence, quote, the scientific evidence that we have for human origins and the literary evidence we have for human origins is so overwhelmingly persuasive that belief in a first human, such as Paul understood him, is not a viable option. The way forward, I believe, he continues, 
is to recognize the profound historical truths, not simply symbolic, but historical truths in Paul's words that remain despite his view of human origins. And those truths are one, the universal and self-evident problem of death. Two, the universal and self-evident problem of sin. And three, the historical event of the death and resurrection of Christ. Now do this. Try to be sympathetic and critical at the same time and in that order as we probe this. I want to try to help you understand why he says this. That he says it will make the, um, the, the blood boil of, of someone who has embraced these as so vital to the gospel Listen and let's probe why he says what he says. His theological reflections are important for us to grasp, not because they're novel. These aren't novel. This has been around for a long time. It's old fashioned liberalism from the 18th century moving forward. But it's important to listen to because of the way at which he arrives at these conclusions, not that. He has denied the historicity of Adam. Not that he disagrees with Paul, but it's the how he does it and the why that he does it that we need to understand. And we need to be patient and listen and understand. In essence, Enns offers us a hermeneutical rationale for rejecting Paul's Adam while keeping other Pauline theological tenets that can be affirmed without affirming the historicity of Adam. So it's like this. Picture it this way. The historicity of Adam is a dispendable, dispensable husk. You can get rid of it. You can just let the historical Adam fade into the netherworld of non-being. And you can find an abiding historical truth or series of truths that exist without that dispensable historical shell. Or at least in Paul's mind. Do you see? It's, a, it's a, an exercise in removing the dispensable husk of Adam's historical person. But nonetheless affirming some truths. Historical truths that Paul wants to affirm. Now, how does he do that? Why does he do it? How does he do it? Well, Enns does this. And I find it useful. I, I want to express appreciation to him for giving us nine theses at the end of his book that summarize his view. When someone writes a book and is arguing a case, I appreciate if the thesis is clear and I appreciate the summaries of it. And so I can use these to try to give you just a sense of where he's coming from. And the key is this. Understand him. We need to make sure we understand him. Here's what he says, first of all. Quote, unquote, literalism is not an option. Let me... Parse that out. Literalism is not an option. That's language that can be translated in this way without losing the sense. The historical Adam is not an option. The historical Adam is not an option. We heard this morning about ways of uniting metaphor and theophany and about the symbolic ways that literal truths can be conveyed. And ends wants to get away from any literal Adam. There is no Adam to whom you can point you can't denote him because he doesn't exist. Thesis two. Scientific and biblical models of human origins are, strictly speaking, incompatible. 
because they speak different languages. Scientific origins, biblical origins are incompatible because they speak different languages. They cannot be reconciled. And there is no Adam to be found in an evolutionary scheme. Do you hear the logic of it? You've got an evolutionary account of Adam. You've got Paul's account of Adam. The evolutionary account and Paul's account cannot be reconciled. So what do you do? Evolution here, Paul here. You take the evolutionary account. They cannot be reconciled. So you take an evolutionary account. Is there room for an historical Adam on naturalistic evolutionary premises? No. Therefore, we reject the historical Adam. It truly is that decisive for ends. But then we have to ask the question, what is the Adam story and how does it function? Well, according to ends, the uh, propositions three and four, theses three and four qualify one another. The Adam story in Genesis reflects its A-N-E setting, its ancient Near Eastern setting, as an exercise in community self-definition and should be read that way. In other words, the Adam story is an exercise in community self-definition. Adam is a narrative construction of post-exilic Israel. And the Adam story is used to give a definition to and an identity to Israel as God's people in exile. So Adam is actually a narrative construction of the post-exilic people of God. And on that view, he calls Adam, quote-unquote, a proto-Israelite. He is, quote-unquote, every Israelite. And exemplifies the consequences of choosing foolishly and going into exile instead of choosing wisely and remaining in a holy realm. And so, the, the, those two propositions, and I gave you one in, in, in pretty uh, terse form, is simply to say this. That Adam does not come first historically, he comes second. Adam is a narrative construction by the community of Israel in exile and is projected backward in order to give self-definition to the community. And he says in his fifth thesis that this Israel-centered focus of the Adam story can also be seen in its similarity to Proverbs. The story of Adam is about Israel's failure to fear God and attain wise maturity. And so, Adam is every Israelite. And he is not an historical person. He's a narrative person. He's a narrative construction. Need not exist historically. He is every man in general and no man in particular within Israel. So, thesis six God's solution to what? Israel's exile. Through the resurrection of Christ, 
reveals the deep foundational plight of the human condition. And Paul, I add mistakenly, but Paul expresses that fact in the biblical idiom available to him. That is, the Apostle Paul uses the resurrection of Christ as the solution to the plight of Israel in exile. He is the solution to the plight of Adam, who is proto-Israel. And God, in raising Christ from the dead, is bringing Israel, as it were, out of exile and forming one new people of God, Jew and Gentile. Now, just three more, and then I'm going to say some some things that will expound and, and offer some critical questions. He says this, listen. This is key. I'll say it slowly enough so you can write it if you'd like to. A proper view of inspiration will embrace the fact that God speaks by means of the cultural idiom of the authors. Whether it be the author of Genesis and describing origins of how Paul would later come to understand Genesis Um, Or how Paul would come to understand Genesis. But both reflect the setting and limitations of the cultural moment. That is, what is he saying? God finds existing statements made by fallible, fallen human beings. And then he adopts those statements as his own and uses those fallible, limited, culturally conditioned statements to communicate his message. He speaks then by adopting human words and making them his own. More on that in a moment. The final two points I'm not going to deal as much with. Point eight, the thesis eight, the root of the conflict for many Christians is not scientific or theological, theological, but group identity and fear of losing what it offers. That's a point saying that the reason why there's conflict here turns more on sociological conditions of fear and group identity than true theological concern. Um, I'll, I'll mention I'll, I'll talk to that here in a moment. Um, And in Thesis 9, a true reproachment of evolution, this is a big one, and Christianity requires a synthesis, not simply adding evolution to existing theological formulations. A true synthesis, a radical transformation of what we believe about biblical teaching must arise through a synthesis with evolution, not simply adding evolution to existing theological formulations. Ends envisions an entire rethinking of what Scripture teaches based on the assured results of naturalistic evolutionary theory. He, her- he privileges evolution as the hermeneutical and substantial frame of reference in terms of which we rethink biblical teaching. Now, let me just highlight some of the serious problems that arise from this book. This is not intended to be a global critique, nor is it intended to be a global step-by-step analysis of everything in the book. These questions are simply designed to turn up many of what I consider to be the unresolved and I sense unresolvable problems 
that are presented in this book. And I want to flesh this out, parse this a bit more for us and get us thinking. First, ENDS requires an entire rethinking of Christian theology in light of the assured conclusions of secular evolutionary science. He has allowed evolutionary theory to determine in advance what Scripture can and cannot teach. If Paul teaches an historical Adam, and evolutionary theories say that an historical Adam cannot exist, then we must go with evolutionary theory, not Paul. I do wonder... Um, I think it's clear now, but I still do ask the question, does ENDS really want to subordinate the teaching of Scripture to what a contemporary, provisional, fallible, theory-laden community of secular scientists, and only a cross-section at that, determined to be intellectually credible? This is definitely a problem that the clear teaching of Scripture is now subordinated to fallible, theory-laden, communal, scientific hypothesizing. Does that recognize properly the authority of the Word of God? Does that recognize properly the character of scientific speculation? I think it's a bona fide reversal. Second, How can someone dismiss the theology of the Apostle Paul? How's that possible? How would someone come to do that? I'm aware of time here, but just bear with me. Such a dismissal of Paul's theology of the historical Adam is possible if and only if we think of Paul in a certain way. And here's the way to do it. We think of Paul and his theology, hear this, exclusively in terms of human authorship and second temple hermeneutical milieu. We think of Paul only as human author and only as a practitioner of a second temple hermeneutical milieu. In other words, he becomes instricably embedded in his own time and place and cannot supersede that. In other words, to the extent that ends would even speak of divine authorship, that authorship is nothing more than a divine accommodation to the limitations and errors, both in form and content, of antiquated and outmoded cultural modes of thought. His notion of divine authorship is a species of divine accommodation to the limitations and errors, both in form and content, of antiquated, outmoded, and I would say erroneous cultural modes of thought. On N's view of accommodation and inspiration, divine authorship is the adoption of erroneous forms of thought in order to communicate a redemptive message. Divine authorship is thus reconceived to be a divine adoption of all the limitations and error of human reflection and cultural limitation. The divine authorship is a function of human authorship on ends model, not the other way around. Put differently, ends does not allow 
a divine author to supply a transcendent context of meaning, which results in a broader understanding than mere human situatedness can render. End's view does not clearly cohere with Scripture's own self-witness regarding the nature of primary divine authorship. All Scripture is what? Theopneustos, God-breathed. All Scripture has its source and its origin in God as holy men write what God bears them along by His Spirit to write. 2 Peter 1.21 And Richard Gaffin has written a, a wonderful work entitled God's Word in Servant Form that provides a convincing alternative to N's attempt to revise Bavink and Kuiper on this very point. I'd like you to read it. I won't say more, but it's a very useful book. Third thing. This is a significant issue. N's regards Paul as wrong in positing an historical before and after of creation and fall. He thinks this positing of a before, 1 Corinthians 15, and an after in a fall is wrong. Paul is wrong to tether sin, guilt, corruption, and death to the wages of Adam's disobedience. As the historical first man, here's what he puts, quote, he, said, he denies, quote, that death is the unnatural state introduced by a disobedient couple in a primordial garden. He denies that. Death is not the unnatural state introduced by a disobedient couple in a primordial garden, 147. It is instead, listen, the natural state under which humanity has always existed. Sin and death are the natural Estate. Now, Dr. Gaffin, Richard B. Gaffin, has a, um, a preface to a book that's being republished by Versteg entitled, Is Adam a Teaching Model in the New Testament? It's going to be out in about two weeks. And he astutely observes this about ends in this preface, and he gave me permission to quote him. He said, ends has, quote, replaced the before and after of creation and fall with their side-by-side inseparability. Sin is not a matter of human fallenness, but human givenness for ends. He obliterates the distinction between the estate of innocency on the one hand and the estate of sin and misery on the other hand and says the estate of sin and misery is the only primal estate for humanity. He has denied the historical before of creation in relation to the historical after of the fall, in which case he has fused forever creation and sin, rendering it extremely difficult for God to say it was all very good, among many other issues. Fourth, if sin is a matter of human givenness, then what do we make of original sin? The primal historical act of rebellion against God's law by our first parents that provides the judicial ground for the guilt and condemnation of humanity in Adam. What do we do with original sin? Enns has an answer. 
On page 124, he borrows a distinction from George L. Murphy. and give you the bibliography on that. And he drops a, quote, crucial theological distinction between original sin and sin of origin. Original sin is that historic Augustinian and Reformed notion that all human beings sin in and fall with Adam in his first transgression. I quoted that at the beginning. That's original sin. Sin of origin, quote, affirms the absolute inevitability of sin that affects every human being from their beginnings from birth. The self-evident reality of repeated relentless sin remains an unalterable and existential fact of human existence. No before, no after, perennial for ends. This is a um, move that not only takes sin away from being vertically oriented against God, it makes it horizontally oriented, but it is a fundamental denial of a movement in history from benevolence to wrath, from integrity in the pre-fall order to sin, curse, and wrath in the post-fall order. What accounts for this? What is the hermeneutical reason for this presentation? Why? If you're following along, I suspect you are ready to stand up and say, no, why? Why would someone do this? Well, there's actually a hermeneutical answer to that question that he makes explicit and that he explains. Enns has what I call A unidirectional hermeneutic when it comes to understanding Paul's approach to the Old Testament. A unidirectional, one directional. He calls it Christotelic. This approach effectively mutes the voice of the Old Testament in the shaping of Paul's theology and instead relocates his hermeneutic entirely in his second temple milieu And in his creative reimagining of the Old Testament in light of Jesus' resurrection. Here's what he says. This is just a little quote. There's much more. You can read the book and and I can expand maybe in Q&A if I don't run us too late. He says this. The reason behind Paul's distinct portrayal of Adam reflects his Christ-centered handling of the Old Testament as we saw in the previous chapter. Israel's story, including Adam, is now to be read in light of its climax in the death and resurrection of Christ. Listen now. In other words, Paul's understanding of Adam is shaped by Jesus, not the other way around. Now, just to give you a sense, I can only do this in in a brief way. I can't give you a full explanation of it, but it's something like this. When Jesus appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus and and Paul encountered the living Christ as raised from the dead and sees Paul from that point forward creatively and freely reimagining the Old Testament around Jesus, 
He creatively reimagines monotheism around Jesus. He creatively reimagines election around Jesus. He creatively reimagines eschatology around Jesus. And it is the unidirectional move from experiencing Christ as a second temple Jew, experiencing the goal of redemptive history according to his conviction, and then imaginatively reinterpreting the Old Testament around Jesus. There is no sense in which the Old Testament shapes and coerces and informs his interpretation of Jesus. His encounter with Jesus shapes and informs and coerces his understanding of the Old Testament. It's a unidirectional, only from Christ back reading of the Old Testament. Certainly, we want to note that the resurrection of Christ impacted Paul at the deepest religious level. There's no doubt about it. But it's one thing to say that Paul's understanding is shaped by Jesus, that his understanding of Adam is shaped by Jesus. It's another thing entirely to say that Paul's understanding of Jesus was in no sense shaped by Adam, who was first, whose sin provided the plight that the solution of Jesus solved. And then to go on to claim that Paul's understanding of Jesus is a novelty that doesn't have any theological moorings in the teaching of the Old Testament. See, his point is that Paul's reimagined Adam has nothing to do with the Adam of the Old Testament at all. This Adam is a kind of narrative construction, a reimagined Adam in light of Paul's apostolic imagination, not the Adam of the Old Testament. So he drives a rigid hermetically sealed bifurcation, as it were, between ends does between Paul's Adam and the Adam of the Old Testament. Ends argument is that Paul's viewpoint is at odds with the Old Testament itself is instead a function of his unique historical context and his encounter with the ascended Christ and his imaginative rereading of the Old Testament with a liberated apostolic imagination. However, In the tradition ends once upheld, a before in his case. The Reformed tradition, Pauline scholars such as Hermann Ritterboss, Gerhardus Voss, and Richard B. Gaffin Jr. have come to conclusions directly opposed to ends. These scholars note, and I hope we can have some textual appreciation for it, that Adam is the indispensable historical prototype who sets the historical paradigm that underlies the identity and historical function of the last Adam, Jesus Christ. Paul himself in Romans 5 presents Adam as a type of the one to come. A type, an historical person who is a type of the coming one, that Paul expands the logic of that in 1 Corinthians 15. In Paul's theology, if I could put this basically, the historical Adam as created and the resurrected Christ mutually condition and impact his understanding of one another. They're mutually conditioning. There is a bi-directional Interface. Paul encountering the ascended Christ, given the witness to this Christ in the pages of the Old Testament. The authority of the Old Testament 
and its witness to Christ constrains Paul's understanding of Jesus. A unidirectional, Christotelic hermeneutic such as ends and those who follow him practice reduces the Old Testament to a wax nose with no theological bearing at all on Paul's Adam. And it makes Paul's understanding of Adam purely a matter of imaginative eisegesis, a reading into the Old Testament of something that's foreign. Paul's Adam is eisegetical, imposed by him upon an Old Testament that is foreign to such a person. Two more comments. Closely related to this, Christotelic hermeneutic, this unidirectional hermeneutic, leads directly to a denial of inerrancy as envisioned within the Reformed theological tradition. Thinking of old Amsterdam, old Princeton, anyone. And it boggles the mind, at least mine, that we have an ends an instance where he affirms error, not on a minor point of historical detail. He doesn't point out a difficult issue to harmonize like in the Gospels, synoptics and Johannine Gospels or the synoptics themselves. Instead, he says that the Apostle Paul was mistaken in his teaching regarding the existence of the first Adam as a created human being from the dust of the ground in the image of God. He says that's wrong. It, it is astounding. It's, it's a shocker. To me, it's a, um, un, uh, unfathomable from one standpoint. Paul was mistaken that all human beings derive from him by ordinary generation. Paul was mistaken that sin and guilt and death enter the world through the transgression of Adam in the Garden of Eden. And as I see it, and I am willing to have conversation on this, and I'm willing to talk this through as patiently and charitably with a spirit of, of Christ-likeness. But this seems, this kind of conclusion seems to be the inevitable outcome of his Christotelic hermeneutics. Perhaps fellow practitioners of Venn's method, he identifies uh, some such as Dan McCartney and others. Perhaps they can clarify how Enns is not carrying this Christotelic hermeneutics to its logical conclusion. Perhaps they can. Perhaps they cannot. But clarification on this vital topic remains a pressing question as far as I can see it. Sixth or seventh, I've lost track. Why should ends? Now think about this with me. Just think about this. Be sympathetic to what ends is saying. Inhabit his hermeneutical world of of reference for a moment. Okay? And, And listen. Why should ends allow the bodily resurrection of Jesus to stand as an historical fact? Why? Well, on ends terms, it seems that we need also to correct Paul's mistaken notion that dead people rise miraculously. Evolution renders that belief absurd. And there are other resurrection stories in Paul's context that make claims regarding resurrection. If we use ends logic, it seems that we can say very consistently that Paul is engaging in a second temple form of community self-definition. Using the resurrection narrative 
as a new beginning to frame the identity of Jew and Gentile. After all, he says, Jesus is the Arche, the beginning, the Prototokos Ekton Nekron, the firstborn from among the dead. This is just a new attempt by an ancient pre-scientific Jew at community self-definition. And instead of defining the community around a narrative of Adam as a proto-Israelite, he defines community identity around Jesus as a proto-Christian, Jew and Gentile alike in him. Paul, as a pre-scientific man who still believes in resurrection, mistakenly appeals to the resurrection as an historical fact. Evolution teaches us such things are impossible. Other resurrection narratives exist in his context. I failed to see how ends could have a cogent response to this move, given his overt agenda to synthesize biblical teaching with evolution. And apart from his appeals to primordial history and recent history that he makes in, in his book, I don't see that it's overcoming this kind of a fundamental problem on his own terms. Well, here's my final observation. This really is it. I was taught by Robert Strimple, who is now the um, professor emeritus of systematic theology at Westminster Theological Seminary in California. After that, I was trained under Dr. Richard Gaffin at Westminster in California. I've alluded to Gaffin, and I thought it appropriate to allude now to Strimple. He wrote an essay that he had us read when I was in seminary, for which I am grateful today. That he wrote, it was entitled, Was Adam an Historical Person and What Does It Matter? I love the title. It reappeared in a volume, uh, the 50th anniversary of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, entitled Confident of Better Things. The essay was, was reprinted, and I really pushed to have that happen. I appreciate the essay. Um, and he reminds in that volume, in that essay, he reminds us of the theology of Karl Barth. In terms of theological conclusion, and listen to what he says now, in light of what I've told you from Enswine, listen. This is all quoting from Strimple's essay. It's a fairly short quote. He says, Karl Barth taught that we must not view the fall as an historical event by which man passed from an original state of righteousness to a state of depravity. Because, quote, in the matter of human disobedience and depravity, there is no earlier in which man was not yet a transgressor and as such innocent. End of quote. That's Bart. Let me give it one more time. In the matter of human disobedience and depravity, there is no earlier in which man was not yet a transgressor and as such innocent. End of Bart. Quote. Now, Strimple. Human history, quoting Bart again, constantly reenacts the little scene in the Garden of Eden. There never was a golden age. This is Bart. There is no point in looking back to one. The first man was immediately the first sinner. It is the word of God which forbids us to dream of any golden age in the past or real, any real progress within Adamic mankind in history or any future state of historical perfection. End of quote, Karl Barth. Church Dogmatics, Volume 4A, translated by Bromley, pages 551, 508, and 511. Do you hear that? For Bart, there is no before and after. There is no earlier. There is no golden age. No point in looking back to one. The first man was immediately the first sinner. Now, the reason I say this 
is that Enns has asked us to engage in theological exploration. He invites his readers to reflect on the theological horizons that his book opens. And he wants us to do so with courage and in conversation. Enns has articulated the hermeneutical presuppositions that lead to the theology of Karl Barth, who himself denied the fall into sin of an historical Adam. The next step Barth took was a denial regarding the transition from wrath to grace in the historical humiliation and exaltation of Jesus Christ. There is no transition from grace to wrath or wrath to grace. Barth offers a well-worn path for ends and his followers to take on their way of theological discovery. And whether or not they know it, they are already walking upon it. Thank you.